Welcome to God Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Dr. Ajua Smalls-Monte. Ajua is a psychiatrist. She works in New York City. And uh, yeah, this is a great episode. She talks about the mental health crisis. And honestly, it's a really fun one to enjoy and learn a lot. Please check me out on Instagram at NoorKidWai. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records. So check them out too. Let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Dr. Ajua Smalls-Fonte. Welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. I'm here with Ajua Smalls-Fonte. Ajua, thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, you have like such a really cool background. Um, yeah, so many stuff that I love to talk about on this podcast. So maybe like introduce yourself to the audience for me and uh, we can get to know you a little bit. Sure. So I consider myself a doctor, scientist, writer, and I have a background that just kept switching and moving and evolving. So right now, um, I'm currently practicing as a psychiatrist in New York City. I do emergency psychiatry. Um, but really, I started off um, doing research. I um, became interested in science at um, during high school, went to college, knew I was going to do research and did HIV vaccine re- uh, related research for many years. Um, and then I went to medical school. And as I say, got distracted by psychiatry, I just fell in love with that specialty during my rotation. And so um, I did a residency in psychiatry. And then since then, I've been practicing emergency psychiatry, like I said, but also during the pandemic, I got more into how um, I got to thinking, how do I message and talk to people about what's going on? I'm seeing, you know, us struggling with this viral infection, but also the mental strain of the pandemic was very evident in the beginning and still now. And so I wanted a way to communicate that. So that's when I began working with um, some news outlets, um, such as uh, with ABC, Black News Channel, writing for other publications just to communicate science as well. And I also recently wrote a children's book about uh, vaccines called Anjali the Brave. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. That's uh, really good work that you're doing. I appreciate that. Um, maybe uh, if you can ask, I'm, I've always been curious, like, what's the difference between psychiatry and psychology and just like how you guys treat patients and just even interact with patients? So in a psychiatrist is a medical doctor, um, we either get an MD or DO. And after four years of school, we do a residency, uh, which is four years as well. And then from after doing your four years of psychiatry residency, um, where you're learning how to treat people, um, one with medications because we're doctors, but two, we also learn how to uh, do therapy as well. Mm. After you do those four years of training, then you can do specialty training, whether it's uh, child psychiatry, forensics, um, 
you know, many different fields. In psychology, um, those are individuals uh, that go and get their PhD and they specifically focus on therapy. They don't um, have a license to prescribe medications, but they are very, very uh, more versed in a lot of different therapeutic um, modalities during their training. Mm. So how do you guys like interact with each other? Like, is there a way like somebody's like, oh, we should send you to this uh, and you're probably more better suited for a psychologist or psychiatrist? Yeah, I think a lot of times people will have a problem and they have an idea of I want to be treated with um, just talk therapy or just um, or just medications for now. Mm. And you know, a psychiatrist, yes, we can do both of those things, but sometimes, um, and you can also start off with just a psychologist where you think, okay, I don't want to do any medications right now, start to do that. But then maybe a psychologist will say, you know, we've been doing therapy for a while. There's been some improvement, but you have room to grow. There's more um, possibilities, maybe with medications, because often in the treatment with some uh, disorders, medication and therapy have been shown to be more effective than just either medications or therapy alone. So maybe the psychologist or, you know, a um, licensed clinical social worker, um, somebody else that does therapy may then tell you, okay, go see a psychiatrist that can prescribe medications. Sometimes as a psychiatrist, I'm starting to work with somebody we're trying to address symptoms with medication. That means we can address sleep and appetite and, um, you know, if you have ADHD, uh, concentration, um, you know, psychosis, um, you know, with medications, hallucinations, those we can address with medications, but sometimes the issues that people come to you with are a lot deeper based on experiences that they have gone through that need um, maybe a little bit more probing and also a little bit more specialized treatment, more skills to be gained. And while psychiatrists definitely may have had special training um, in learning special therapies, a lot of times um, psychologists, you know, because that is really the only uh, treatment that they can offer the talk therapy and everything, they, they mm-hmm. do have a lot of experience in a lot of different things. So they have more ability to, since that's all that they're doing, like they may have more time to take on patients to, to do the therapy and um, specialized treatments. But I, I would say that, again, you can do therapy with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but you can only get medications from a uh, psychiatrist. Okay. Yeah, no, that was a great way of explaining it. Thanks for that. Um, I saw you live in New York and like you said, during the pandemic, you were doing an emergency um, psychiatry war or how does that, I want to say that again? Yes. So I, my specialty is emergency psychiatry. Essentially, I am a psychiatrist that works in the emergency room. Okay. In New York, we also have a lot of um, psychiatric emergency rooms called CPEPs. Um, But because there are so many people with a psychiatric need, and these psychiatric emergency rooms are separate from the general emergency room that you might go to for, you know, a broken leg or, you know, a stroke or something like that. Mm. Um, so 
I, I work in that type of setting. And there, my job is to help make sure that you're stable, whatever crisis you're going through, whether that's uh, depression, anxiety, um, you know, psychosis, uh, withdrawal from, you know, drugs, um, sometimes withdrawal from certain, um, you know, alcohol or benzodiazepines can be very dangerous, like mm. to help you stabilize you with that. And then my second big decision is to decide, are you so sick that you need to stay in the hospital for treatment? Or can you leave the hospital and then go to um, see a doctor outside um, of the hospital in an outpatient uh, setting to continue mm -hmm. your treatment and therapy and, um, you know, helping coordinate care for that. Yeah. And so during the pandemic, I could imagine how tough your job would have been. Um, can you give us like a little bit of a scope into like what happened during the pandemic? Like what kind of things that you saw increase? Yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I would say New York definitely was the epicenter for the first couple of months. And there were fewer patients coming into the emergency room for all types of reasons, because people just didn't want to be exposed. So for about a month or two, let's say late March to April, May, there were fewer patients, I would yeah, say, okay. and this was, you know, very surprising. But then by June, um, you know, whatever needs people had started coming back up and the volume of people I started seeing definitely started going back up. And by now, the number of people I'm seeing routinely is more than I recall seeing before the pandemic. Mm. The issues that I saw during the pandemic when not a lot of people were trying to come in were people that had mental illness that was very noticeable. So if you were, as in New York, um, emotionally disturbed persons um, or EDP is how sometimes people are labeled if they are agitated, maybe talking to themselves on the street or saying something weird, their family notices, they're not sleeping, they're having signs of mania or psychosis. I think I saw a little bit more of that because that was very critical, you know, um, whatever they were doing was really causing a disturbance in their environment and people, whether it's their family, friends, themselves, or um, medical personnel brought them to the emergency room. Since then, I've seen more uh, depression coming out of bereavement. Um, bereavement being like uh, death, like dealing grief with death, from grief, death. grief. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I I definitely thought up at the beginning of the you know COVID pandemic that the next pandemic would be a mental health pandemic because. Mm. Um, People were isolated. So many people lost, you know, loved ones, mm. um, friends, things like that. So um, now I'm seeing more people coming in with depression from, again, bereavement, it's anniversary of someone dying or loneliness um, definitely has led to that. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm seeing a rise in um suicidal ideation, as we say, like children, young, you know, teenagers uh, wanting to die. And that's not something that I've only noticed. It's been rising. Um, and, and we've noticed this as a nation here in America, our Surgeon General um, put out an advisory 
last December, I believe, talking about um, warning about the youth mental health crisis. And so I'm seeing more of um, of that, just the effects of isolation um, taking a toll on young people. I also started seeing a little bit more a difference in the type of drugs that were being used, um, a lot more methamphetamine use, which um, I did not see before as much. So are you talking again, uh, street drug or uh, street more drugs? Pers- okay. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Street drugs. Okay. Yeah. So, so more of that also, um, you know, the alcoholism is there, um, you know, heroin, um, overdoses, things that are, you know, um, even drugs that are mixed with fentanyl, you know, yeah, that's yeah. coming up more on people's urine toxicology. And you're saying, well, you know, you had this in your system and people are surprised, you know, um, because the drugs are laced, um, with fentanyl. So I'm, I'm seeing more of that. Uh, but I would, I would say really the depression is starting to become very noticeable, especially among the teenagers. Mm-hmm. So in psychiatry, do you guys kind of look at uh, the substance abuse as something like a self-medication? Like people are kind of doing this to try to ease their own pain or their own uh, whatever they're dealing with? Absolutely. Okay. I think a lot of people uh, will say that you know, I do this, um, to feel a little bit better at this time. And then they recognize, you know, if they've ended up in the emergency room where, you know, cause something went wrong, mm-hmm. they recognize, oh yeah, this could have a problem. But a lot of people still, you know, despite the consequences do say like, this is the only thing that has helped me yeah. a little bit. Um, and maybe because they haven't had access to other, um, treatments, you know, from a psychiatrist, from a psychologist or, you know, therapist. So if you're uh, treating somebody who's sub- like abusing a substance to try to kind of self-medicate, is your job trying to like, like one part, get them off that substance and then the second part, get them onto something that might actually level them out a little bit? Definitely. If um, I were working with them longer, that is the goal. A lot of times I'm seeing people just to stabilize them, but the ones that are admitted to the hospital, they do come in because they say, okay, I've been suffering with uh, depression for a very long time. And I've been using alcohol to treat that. Now I want to come off the alcohol and I want to really treat my um, insomnia. A lot of people are drinking alcohol to help them sleep. So I mm. want to work on that. Um, sometimes if people, um, you know, cocaine, I, I feel bad, but the cocaine gives me a little bit of a high. So I'm using that and we can then admit them to the hospital to treat them for that. Or, you know, again, send them to a doctor that they can see in their community. So that is what we do offer people. And, you know, people are ready for change at different times. So not everyone that comes in um, that had something bad happen to them in the emergency room is ready for change. And that's Mm, um, something that that you have to go to. You can't force anybody to change. But um, I think a lot more people are willing uh, to ask for help when they're in that situation because they realize something um, has gotten to a critical level. Yeah, I think that's uh, something I've noticed, too, is like it has to like sometimes get to that critical level a little bit where you get that 
shot of awareness where you're like, okay, maybe, uh, maybe I do need to make some sort of change. Um, you did talk, like, I think a lot of times you bring up the theme of loneliness and isolation. So usually I'm in Toronto right now, I'm in Calgary, but I've noticed like when I am in Toronto, the big city, uh, especially during the pandemic, how much it was like loneliness and isolation is just becoming a norm for so many people. And uh, I sometimes get into that uh, place myself, especially during the pandemic. And it it, it can be tough. And like when you see somebody who comes Mm -hmm. in with that kind of issue, like, (laughs) <laughs> you can't really go and subscribe with some friends or like a, or like some sort of like group or book club or something. I don't know. Uh, um, what? How do you like even deal with that? Or like, or do you have like any advice on that? You, you know, you say I can't necessarily prescribe it, but almost in a way I sort of do. I will sit down and talk with people, try to figure out a little bit more about what their life outside looks like. Not only like, you know, okay, you're fine now, you can go home, but let's kind of come up with a plan where we can identify things you like to do, places you used to like to go to that maybe you couldn't go to during the pandemic or now that you can go back out to, people that you feel you can reach out to. And sometimes we do write you know, this down for, um, for patients. I do this very routinely after we've talked through all of these things. So, um, you know, sometimes when people come in with um, thoughts of wanting to uh, end their life, we get them to a point where they feel fine and stable, but then we're saying, okay, you're good enough. Maybe you don't need to be in the hospital right now, but we want to send you out and we can, um, you know, to work with somebody outside in the community. Mm we do something that's called a safety plan. This is routine in psychiatric care everywhere um, where we're thinking about in your worst case scenario, who are the people that you can reach out to? What are the things that you can do to help get you through that very hard moment if those thoughts come again? Mm. So I am helping people think of who you would reach out to. Do you have those numbers? Let's write that down. So you have it on a piece of paper is readily accessible for you. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the music you like to listen to? What are the activities? Uh, Sometimes people come in because they're, um, you know, maybe it's not suicidal thoughts, but they can't sleep. Uh, But what are things that you're doing uh, that are preventing you from sleeping? And what are things that you can do to help you sleep? So all of um, essentially I, I do sort of do a loose, uh, prescription <laughs> of that to say, let's, let's talk about these things and hopefully people can, um, take that with them when they leave. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you said like destabilization. I'm, I'm kind of wondering like how, like, uh, for like, I guess like I kind of, I've, I've had like issues myself back in the day, but I guess nothing that could ever be probably at that term of destabilization like how does that happen is there like when you talk about it in the like therapy world is there like a way that they kind of see like there's certain things that kind of happen to lead to like a destabilization or is it just kind of can come from so many different angles yeah it depends on what the disorder is that you have so from depression again I, I think that's very common um people can become destabilized because of an event that happened. Uh, Usually that's what leads to people having, the people that I see having a depressive episode. Um, 
for people that have bipolar disorder, uh, they have depressive episodes, but they also have manic episodes. We know that one of the more common triggers for a manic episode is lack of sleep. So if you're not sleeping because you had a lot of work to do in your job at school, you were hanging out a lot, that, that could be it. Sometimes substances can also uh, cause you to destabilize as well, um, especially with mania and if you have schizophrenia as well. Um, people will have brief periods of psychosis um, due to using a drug and then within 24 48, 72 hours, they're fine. Mm. Um, and one thing I'll mention is, you know, we don't talk about it too much, but um, what I see very frequently is um, sometimes marijuana can be destabilizing or the synthetic marijuana mm -hmm. can be destabilizing for people, especially if they have schizophrenia can cause some psychotic symptoms. Um, so I think just with the drive to legalize marijuana, it is something people should be aware of if they either have um, a psychotic disorder or, or bipolar disorder or something just that that can um, be destabilizing for them, even though for many other people, it's stabilizing. No, you I, know, so they report. Yeah. Uh, with my uh, use of uh, marijuana, I definitely uh, have felt those. Uh, I know how it can get uh, pretty uh, rough. And I've, I've had friends who've uh, even they've, uh, they've had a predisposition to schizophrenia and I think marijuana might have been a trigger to them so like I yeah that that's a known trigger like if you are genetically predisposed sometimes if you use marijuana enough it can lead to you um finally having your first psychotic episode or first break that then becomes a lifelong uh, disorder of schizophrenia. So um, it's just, you know, something to be aware of. You may not know, but if you start to notice, oh, I'm using this and I'm feeling a little bit weird, just, um, you know, be aware of that and you might have to modify your use. Mm. So do you guys have like a description for a psychotic episode? Like, would you be able to even like, I, if you never had one, would you be able to even empathize with one to kind of have a little understanding of what it would be like? Yeah. When people are psychotic, they've lost touch with reality. And they're also very, um, sometimes that can be associated with also having hallucinations, whether they are seeing things or hearing things that quite frankly, aren't there. Mm. Uh, that That's the most common manifestation of it. And sometimes when people are um, psychotic, they can become really their behavior can change. They can be, become riled up or agitated as we'll say, but sometimes people might be very, very calm. You wouldn't even know that they're experiencing psychosis until you start talking to them. And, you know, they might be, you think you're talking to them, but they seem like they are talking to somebody else. You know, they're not mm -hmm. listening to your voice, but another voice, or they're pointing to something else that they're seeing in the room or what they're saying just doesn't make any sense um that yeah. that you can understand yeah no that's uh that's interesting uh the one thing I did like how you are saying like in like psychiatry and stuff you do talk to the patients about their like life uh outside of like the, their, their treatment and everything which is 
Good. Uh, I'm wondering, like, how long has this been a practice for you think uh, in the whole field? Because I remember, I think it used to be kind of a stereotype of the field that you guys would kind of just like sit them down, be like, oh, you're this. So you get uh, this kind of medication and like you go on kind of thing. But it seems like now, like with psychiatry, with psychology and stuff, with a lot of it is kind of taken into aspect, the environment of the patient and kind of like the whole inner world of the patient and then understanding that there's just so many different, uh, different, uh, what you call it, uh, aspects that can go into their mental health. So is this like something that's been changing readily? I think so. A lot of us in the field and the field in general have recognized the impacts of the environment, whether it's the whether it's based on where you live, whether it's a rural area, whether it's um, your cultural identity, how that plays into your experience of the world. Um, also your type of job, you know, we're looking at burnout in many different fields of medicine. So we, we realize that there are lots of factors in people's lives that are leading to them experiencing what they're experiencing. And we can't, um, sometimes we can't just treat that with a pill. We can treat the symptoms, but to help people cope, learn good coping mechanisms, um, learn ways to maybe adjust their thinking or uh, develop you know, resilience so they can continue facing some very hard and fixed things in their life. We have to understand what those are. Mm, no, I like that. Um... And I noticed like uh, for myself up in particular, I think I, uh, ever since the pandemic happened, I kind of like came up with a lot more anxiety. My anxiety kind of like started to flare up a lot more. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I did even have like a couple of panic attacks during the pandemic, which were like really rough. And uh, I'm starting to deal with them a lot better. But uh, maybe if you can kind of give us an idea of like, what's where does like anxiety stop and panic attack at start? Or like, are they are they different? Do you guys kind of see them as the same kind of thing? We see them, how they show up are the same, but their causes are different. So some people will be worrying about things in particular and then they can have an anxiety attack, we'll call it, because you know whether it's shortness of breath, their chest feels tight. A lot of people will say, my fingers feel numb um, because you know they're hyperventilating, not getting enough oxygen, but they know what caused that anxiety. They knew they were going to um, go out in public somewhere, you know, in particular, or they knew they were worried about um, this particular situation that they were about to be in, um, about the cleansing, cleansiness of something, they can pinpoint the trigger. And a panic attack, people don't know what the trigger is. They just have these symptoms, you know, impending sense of doom, almost like you're having a heart attack or stroke, or just all of a sudden you feel like you're having this and they can't tie it to anything that they've cautiously been anxious about, mm. but we still treat, um, and the immediate, like when we're trying to stabilize you, we can still treat it in the same way by giving, um, if I'm seeing you in the emergency room and you're in the midst of one of those attacks, there are some medications I can offer you. Um, but all, for both of them, a lot of times therapy is going to be very helpful ultimately and dealing with it long-term. Okay. And like uh, you did say, 
like the cause of a panic attack is unknown. So it's like sometimes, sometimes until, yeah. Um, we'll say a lot of times it's unknown and then through therapy, you can start to understand, um, oh. maybe what it, what it is. Sometimes, and you, you know, and you think that cause is kind of similar to what would be causing the anxiety as well, or. Yeah. Just, yeah. um, yeah, a lot of an underlying concern that is maybe not fully conscious to you at that time, but a lot of times, again, with the anxiety attacks, we still label it. We know exactly what it is at that moment. That's causing you the anxiety. Oh, wow. That's uh that's very interesting. So when you like, uh, when you start becoming conscious of like, uh, maybe the underlying something that you haven't dealt with and like you actually become conscious of it and start maybe doing the work to deal with that. Is that what can kind of make these like anxiety and panic kind of go away? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, and you did talk about coping mechanisms. So this is something I know my audience loves to hear about. Uh, so maybe let's kind of stick with anxiety and depression, because I think these are probably the two most common ones in our society. Like what kind of what kind of coping mechanisms do you like kind of give, especially when people are starting or in that kind of state of being anxious or depressed? Yeah. So for anxiety in the emergency room, I will, um, if people are in the midst of a panic attack, I will try some deep breathing techniques with you. And that, that really does help. It might sound hokey to some people, but it does. Um, I will breathe with you. We will stop, um, you know, for three to five minutes and try to work on that. Um, also with anxiety, it really does help to even just talk about what the concern was, how, um, it's still present or not things that we can do to try to address it, you know, coming up with practical solutions. In terms of depression, a lot of people's depression comes from so many different things, but I think one of the more prevalent ones is loneliness and isolation when people have like really, really deep depression um, to the point where they feel like they can't face life anymore. The thing that everyone tells me is that I have nobody, um, nobody cares about me. Um, and so for me, I'm really trying to help people identify if there is somebody in their life that does care about them, that they can reach out to. And in the emergency I room, I will try to um, maybe connect with that person to say, here, in your moment of crisis, this person is here for you. They see your pain. They recognize your pain, whether I can, whether the person is there, shows up or even if I make a phone call to them because they gave me their number, I'm saying this person really does care about you. Like helping people identify that is, I think, very critical. Um, and probably, I, I think one of the bigger things that I can do to help people, um, even though they're that's not going to fix their depression at all, at least start to feel like, okay, I can go on another day. There's somebody else here to help me. Um, and then, you know, other forms of depression that come from, you know, stress, you know, lack of sleep, we can try to think of ways that to address your schedule, things that you can do to help you sleep, um, whether that's reading something or for stress, like 
what is causing the most stress? How can you stop this at that point um, and move on to something and then return to the things that you have to do? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we find people that can help you with the things that are really um, stressing you out? I find that, you know, instead of develop, um, teaching so much long-term coping skills, I'm trying to help people find um practical resources they already have. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit more time and it's a little bit easier to identify that in the emergency room, um, as opposed to where, when I did, you know, outpatient work, I could actually work on trying to address people's thoughts that they have and how they, you know, challenging those thoughts that they have, you know, as another type of coping mechanism, because I just don't have as much time in the ED. Yeah, and I, I can completely understand an emergency how, yeah, you can't uh, have that much time to get, especially into like digging into people's thoughts. But that's a very uh, like interesting thing that you did say. It's like, I like how you said, identify somebody in your life that does care. And I can understand how that will, it can kind of change like your mood right away a little bit and just kind of go like, okay, like this person is here for me. That's that, that could be very powerful. Yeah. And not everyone has that um, in a family member or friend per se. Some people might be connected to a program or resource or even have a doctor that, again, this person does care about you or mm-hmm. um, this case manager that's working with you. Um, they're helping you address your needs. It's not perfect. And everyone doesn't have, you know, the perfect number or the perfect person in their life. So that is hard and challenging, but we, we, you know, I I do try to help people identify that or where they can find other social supports. I think that is so um, important because on humans at a basic level, we just um, want to need to be loved and want to connect with others. Mm -hmm. No, I I love that. And, uh, and like, yeah, I get that when you have those thoughts of uh, like, yeah, like I'm alone, nobody wants me, blah, you know, that kind of stuff. And if they kind of get a hold of you, like really deep and deep that they become like persistent, I can I can really see how damaging that can be and how low that can get you. So they, I, I can see mm-hmm. and I, I can understand the process of getting rid of those thoughts is probably not just as simple as like, all right, get out of here. It has to, it, it is, it can require some long-term work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, no, that's awesome. So one more thing before, like, I just wanted to say like, um, how do you like kind of uh, t- tell people like just kind of like their daily routines or something just to kind of keep their well being up just to, like, what do you recommend? Well, I um, probably in the emergency room, I'm focusing a little bit more on make sure that you're getting adequate sleep. Um, mm-hmm. That is so important. Um, and I, I know like when I don't get adequate sleep for a long time, you know, you're not functioning at, at your peak and that predisposes you to misinterpreting things if you're, you know, having a psychotic episode or can fuel your mania. So sleep is very critical. Um, Also trying to connect with others. That's the second, probably biggest thing I try to reinforce with people. And again, for all the reasons I said before, but there are a couple of other things in general that I would say are um, important for maintaining well-being. I would say having, uh, reducing your stress, 
if you can. Um, a lot of us are stressed out for so many different reasons. And that's mm-hmm. just where society is today. Like, go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. And you can do a lot of things. No one's telling you you have to stop or whatever. But it's trying to make sure when you are getting to the point where you're like, okay, this is too much, trying to stay, take a step back and then rearrange things so that you're going at a better pace, mm-hmm. essentially pacing yourself. You know, as every other doctor will say, every other field, um, eating properly, um, good, nutritious, healthy foods is important. You'll find if you're eating a lot more sugars and fats that you'll feel more tired and sluggish as opposed to when you're getting more fresh things, getting out and getting exercise, um, fresh air um, is wonderful. Um, If you can do that, take a walk. That's a way that you can connect with people, especially during the pandemic. That was like only the only activity that you really could do because everything was closed. So I went on so many walks and discovered (laughs) so many different parts of the area where I live, but um, exercise is really important. And then I would just say for um, everything in moderation, if you're using certain substances, um, you know, like I said, a lot of people are turned to using more alcohol and drugs during the pandemic. And we're seeing, you know, opiate um, use go up, alcohol use go up. So just using things in moderation, um, you know, or the ones that are very dangerous, damaging, trying to cut completely. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. That's a, that's a lot of great advice. I appreciate that. Um, all right. I got one more question. It's the name of the mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, so please let me know. God, yay or nay. I am yay on this one. I've been um, very thankful for God's work in my life. It is having faith has allowed me to face a lot of the challenges that I have experienced personally. I I don't know how people get through life without knowing that there is a greater purpose, um, a greater power that's there um, helping you managing everything, even though at times you don't feel as if you have control. So God, yay for me. Oh, that's awesome. Did you, uh, did you grow up uh, like with like faith in the family and stuff? Yes, I I have a Christian. um, I grew up in a Christian home and still consider myself a Christian. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Please let us know about your uh, children's book and like anything you want to promote. uh, Please let my audience know right now, please. Sure. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Ajua. And my children's book, again, is called Anjali the Brave, all about vaccines. It's a book uh, just there to help us learn about the history of vaccines, why they've been helpful, the scientists who created them. Um, And, you know, I I find that a lot of people that have read it feel like it's um, helped them be less scared of getting shots, which is, you know, the goal. Um, So again, I think it's a great read. And um, yeah, that's, that's primarily it. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, hopefully we could do this again in the future. All right, that was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at NewerKidY on Instagram or check out my website, NewerKidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up. 
and all that other information. We're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.